John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 221.ES0601, certificate number 49146. The Chronophile. Now that we know that we can cope with nature's most hostile actions of earthquakes, hurricanes, great arctic snow loads, and now that we know how to get the best mathematics to get the most volume with the least. Next thing is, how do we produce the surfaces that will do this in the highest speed in the most economical, effective manner? I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you before. Have we talked about this? Uh, but you once went on a walk across Europe. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> you know, it's kind of been exaggerated. It's, it's been blown out of proportion. It's going to turn out you just took, you actually took a bus most of the way. You like, you walked for like three hours and we're like, this blows. Yeah. I left, I left the train station in Bern and (laughs) I walked around Bern and then I was like, whew. All right. Back to the train station. I'm going to get a coffee and, uh, the, uh, well you, for years, decades, maybe you've kind of been shaping that experience as I understand it into a possible book of some kind, right? Yeah, I kept it. You know, I was at the University of Washington at the time, and a and a big part of the a big part of the initial plan was that I was going to do it as a sort of as the beginning of a thesis. I was going to write a thesis based on it, and so I kept a journal the whole time. I sent missives back to the University of Washington Daily, which were published. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You're was, like a polar explorer. I was. We have reached uh, Innsbruck. I did exactly that. Morale is high. Every issue for, the, but it was the problem is I was doing it over the summer, so it was the summer edition of the UW Daily, not the you know it wasn't like back oh, to school issue. Wait, it actually appeared in the Daily. It did. Every it was. A, I assuming this was on some departmental bulletin board nobody saw. No, it you was had a, a column. I did. It was in the in the published paper. Our and, man in Europe, John Roderick. Here's here's my dispatch from Romania, Brussels. And part and so the you know the 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 Chid department was Chid explain for the people. I'm sorry Chid is a University of Washington uh, a racial major. slur. <laughs> it's a it's a racial slur. It's no it's our mascot the Chid. Uh, it's a uh, it's a it's a small major uh, called the Comparative History of Ideas. So it's uh, in shouldn't it be Choi? Uh, it should, okay. but but. I wasn't there or, or when they che, decided this. In Korean? When I first when I first joined the Chid department, it was very small. There were only like forty people in the department. Um, 
but it's what my degree ultimately was in when I finally graduated in 2015 after <laughs> 35 years of college. Because you finally got back from Europe. <laughs> you're on a you're on a, a tramp steamer. But then I, I you know I brought the journal back, and you know I'm kind of an earnest guy. I. I believe the children are our future, as you know. You wear your heart on your sleeve. I do. I get excited about things. I often find myself standing up going, oh my God, wow. And then I look around and everybody else is glowering and going, boo. But aren't you kind of a Gen X ironist too? I am super, super. And it's what puts me outside. It's what makes me not punk rock Mm. Um, because I'm such a goober. You're not world weary enough. Yeah, and and I, and I wasn't when I was twenty one, but but you know when I was in school, like I loved pop quizzes, like whoa, pop quiz, how fun! And then I'd look around and everybody nobody wants to give you a high five. No, they're just hating me. I, oh, the number of high fives that I've been left hanging over the years. I loved standardized tests, like the Iowa basics. Oh, Jiminy Christmas! It's a it's a thing. What a human! Uh, it's kind of interesting. There is out there a human being who has been left hanging more than any other person. Oh, for sure. And, and I don't think that's me. You don't think you're the world? No, because I'm also cool. I see. This would be an uncool, but this has to be an uncool person who also is has no clue, or they would stop offering the high five. Yeah, and they have to be around a lot of people that they're putting high fives up to all the time. Right. If you're super uncool, who are you even doing exactly. that to? Your your wife pillow. So you have to be there. I mean, it might, it might be somebody, it, it might be like Jack from Twitter or Elon Musk. I mean, how many <laughs> high fives? I guess he's no, getting all the high fives yeah, now. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you're high-fiving people you pay, you never get left hanging. But, uh, but so then I started working on it as a book, taking my note, basically my notes and trying to turn it into a book. But the problem was I couldn't stop talking about Hitler <laughs> because I'm walking across Europe, you know, and I'm just like, well, you know, Hitler... It's funny how many arenas of your life this problem comes up it's in. It's terrible. And so eventually the manuscript got to be 850 pages. Mein Vok. <laughs> single spaced. And, you know, 400 pages of it are like cool talking about walking across Europe and all the emotional ups and downs. But then 400 pages of it are like when the Romans came, you know, it's just stuff that nobody wants. Nobody's going to pick up this book to hear me talking about. I don't know. It could be one of those Michener books where it's like, for 11 million years, the rains fell. The algae mats formed a dense covering of, it could be that. It's sort of like that. Big picture. Except the problem is like, I'm not, I'm I'm a bad historian because I also want to be a pundit. Mm. So I'm like, here's what I think the Hungarians were thinking. And then I go into these long, this is perfect. just like, here's what the hot take gonzo journalism. That's what it is. It's what it is. I, I thought I was Hunter S. Tompkins, uh, not Tompkins. Hunter F. Tompkins. <laughs> oh, why is that not a podcast? I thought I was Hunter S. Tompkins <laughs> and that I was writing about some sheriff's convention uh, in Las Vegas, but, but it turned out I, so anyway, I'm still working on it. You're just it. Bill Simmons. I'm actually writing it still. Mm-hmm. I wake up in the morning sometimes and I work all day. Oh, I'm this, and it's good. It's a really good. It's just, it needs an, an, an aggressive editor. And you have the original journals still. I have the original journals. Is that the only time in your life you ever journaled? No. Or, or are you an archivist by nature? I'm not, but I journaled all my travels. So I have- Oh, that's smart. I have uh, travel journals from when I went to Outward Bound when I was- 13, and from when I hopped freight trains across America when I was 17. What were you writing on then, do you? 
Uh, just you had a you had a notebook in your bindle. Yeah, a no, notebook in my bindle. I you know I I always got those ones. I mean, for the first the Outward Bound trip, it was they gave us little journals, but then the freight hopping, I was writing in a spiral notebook with a red big pen. And then later I would, when, the ones in Europe, because I've done three separate Europe trips, a, a big, long, you know, nine-month-long, yeah. you know, and uh, I would buy those really cool, like, kind of red-bound journals that you find it's in. It's more like a book. Yeah, European stationery stores, because yeah. I love that stuff. I just have so many. I have so many empty ones. If I If I took all the empty European journals out of my house... I think the whole house would raise one foot, like uh, the water table would push the house up. <laughs> it's the equivalent of leaving stationary hanging. You're yeah. like, hey, notebook, what's up? And then nothing happens. I, I know that a lot of omnibus listeners tire of me talking about my travels. You traveled across Europe? But it's just, uh, you know, it's a, it's a defining characteristic. Well, I'm interested. I was just interested in the because um, I feel like I had never. <laughs> you weren't interested in the ten minutes that I just spent. Talking well, about. I didn't care about the, the haystacks. You talk about that all the time, but I I was interested in the documentation oh. angle because I didn't realize you were sending dispatches to the daily like Shackleton. Yeah, and uh, and I've been thinking a lot about documentation lately. Did you ever keep a, a journal, a diary? Yes, but only in the most boring, insufferable periods of my life. I actually went to my garage today. Oh and, my God, I, and I found look. this like Korean notebook from the late 80s. Spiral bound. Spiral bound. It's got a picture of a baseball player and it says, The Strike Man. We see. are heart to heart friends. <laughs> Jongi Wa Yun Pil Spring Note Series. So if. Oh, wait, but it's meant to be written in uh, uh, right to left. It's back. It's, it's no, backwards. This is just the back of it for some reason. There must have been oh. something else on the front that I. That I Tore off. That, I, that did not survive. And so I'm, is your diary like. Monday went to the went to school. At first, my handwriting is very good, and then it just and I and it goes through my freshman year of college, and then I think that's the last time in my life that I ever kept a analog record of any kind. And you, you very seldom, if never, talk about your feelings. Is your journal full of your feelings? It walks a uneasy line where it is not confessional enough to be useful like really it doesn't have the kind of things that a adolescent is that your brain is just swirling about i mean it has some of them do you read it now and go god come on tell me the tell me more well i remember specifically like well what if somebody sees this i'm not really going to talk about like the the friend drama or the the girl i'm obsessed with or right. the the thing that just makes me so mad the first time you looked in a mirror and saw yourself naked or half naked when I was 29. <laughs> but there's a level of ironic removal. So as if I'm writing to an imagined audience, but oh. the, uh, the writer is not any good. So it's just kind of irritating. I have so much of that writing. I haven't looked at it in, I'm going to say since it was written in most cases, like this morning was the first time I'd looked at most of it in 30 years. I'm, I'm going to amend my earlier statement because in my early twenties, when I was drinking heavily, I, would go sit in bars and write in spiral bound notebooks. And I filled probably seven notebooks, but it's, it's like, again, sort of gonzo grunge era, um, spilling my blood and my life out onto the page. And it's so annoying. 
to to read it. It's just excruciating. Yeah, it might have been worse the other way if it really was all just sturm and drawn. It was just like because terrible be, because of the the poetry. the voice directed at an imaginary audience instead of like I wasn't confiding in my diary. I wasn't talking to myself. I was imagining that this was going to be the great American novel. It's awful. Ugh. I, I, I sit here shivering thinking that anyone would ever read it. Yeah. This is the, the same tension I felt looking at this this morning. And I thought this has got to go. But you it's have it. so embarrassing. Do you think you would destroy it now? Well, I mean, the thing is it's so valuable for um, just the kind of day-to-day, uh, just the mundanity of life and all this stuff that I had totally forgotten. Apparently, I joined... I mean, there's a real play-by-play of um, of the uh, 1988 Seahawks Division Championship game against the Raiders. You you write the game. Well, I'm, I'm, apparently, I'm writing as I'm watching it. So, wow. like, so there's some final, um, you know, some final... Dave Craig first down or a, a sack of the Raiders quarterback or something, which where I'm, you know, are you writing it breathlessly? It, yeah. Like I seem very excited about it. Who did you think the audience for that was? I mean, who, who is the audience for a journal? That's it's the question. Like I'm writing in this very kind of arch way as if like, dear reader, uh, here's what you need to know about. <laughs> I, I went to Arby's today, but you're a teenager with nothing to say and no mastery of the voice. And I find that there's so many things that I've forgotten. Like the things that are, um, like are relevant to my conception of myself at that age. I remember like, here's me and a couple friends making a movie about, um, about uh, imagining Napoleon's redemption on St. Helena in a Christmas Carol kind of format, like a Scrooge retelling with Napoleon that we did for credit in ninth, uh, history credit in ninth grade. Are you going to read a little, little excerpt of it? Mm, there's really no good excerpt. Napoleon's Christmas Carol is almost complete. It's much better than I thought it'd be. That's not very helpful. Mm. But I mean, so I remember that. I remember, um, where was it? I, I had it open to a page where I got called into the, where my my editor at the, the faculty advisor of the student newspaper made me redraw a cartoon because it looked too much like the principal. And he said, you can't actually implicate the principal in, in the cafeteria food. That's not his fault. Show me your drawings. Are there drawings? Were you, are you a doodler? Oh yeah, big time. Oh, look at that. It's Captain it's ca- America. It looks like it's Captain America. Except he's really thick. It's thick with two C's, Captain America. The first C is for Captain. Um, there's doodles in all, there's a ton of marginalia. And I think I would write at the end of every day. But there, so there's stuff like that that I, that, you know, is part of my sense of who I was in the past. But just going through this, there's just insane stuff. Like, like here's a part where my dad is like really depressed because he didn't get a job at something called Space Labs? I don't even know what that is. Space Labs? Am I making this up? Was my dad an astronaut? I feel like Space Labs is a thing we know. Uh, he, um, here's, here's me joining Boy Scouts because um, there's talk of like putting together a trip to New Zealand uh, oh, oh, so this the following year. High school? Yeah, this is all middle school to freshman year of college. Did you, are you an Eagle Scout? No, I'm, I was a... I was immediately quit, but I had forgotten that the reason I started going was because they were trying to gin up talk of a, like an actual overseas trip. Oh, you thought you, you, you tried to, you tried to sneak a free thing. Do you want to know what happened on Tuesday, February 14th? Of what year? Whew. I guess we can find out because of what it says. I mean, it's Valentine's day. 1989. 
Okay. Dale Ellis scored 27 points in the All- NBA All-Star game. For Car Malone took the MVP, and I, I was very angry about that. That's so, your Valentine's Day uh, t- tweet? Pretty romantic. Well, I was in eighth grade. What are you doing Valentine's Day in eighth grade? It's a Tuesday night. In Val- Valentine's Day in 1989, I was... I was in college. Yeah. I, I was in college. I was uh, I was at Gonzaga University. I feel like there's a lot of Harriet the Spy approach to journalism here, where it's just like, let me write down hot takes on all the kids in my class, all the teachers at school. Apparently, Side 2 of Abbey Road is my third favorite Beatles song. And yeah, that's right. I'm going to count it as one song. It's a great song. It's a great song. But I feel very pleased with myself for... Um, for uh, we're saying that that's a single song. My daughter is 11, as you know, and she just read The Diary of Anne Frank uh, a few months ago. And then I should have imme- read that instead of Harriet the Spy. That yeah. was my mistake. She immediately reread it. Um, and I think maybe The Diary of Anne Frank influences all kids writing diaries because it became a book read by millions, and it's just her diary and she's clever uh but but what made it a book read by millions is subsequent um events and i think she was living through unprecedented times yeah and i think there's a sense um when you keep a diary especially if you do this like dear reader uh what you're hoping is that there's some future either that you you achieve some future greatness that makes these diaries prized like Kurt Cobain's stupid lyric books that all got published in facsimile or I don't know that you, that you, um, that you're a witness to history, but I don't think anybody wants to know that Carl Malone was MVP. I think that's it. That's recorded elsewhere. That's the problem with my Hitler stuff. It's like, People have heard of Hitler. Uh, apparently, the day I saw the Nicholson Batman movie was the same day we went out, took my grandmother out to Chinese. She was fifty-eight. <laughs> she was fifty-eight. It was oh. it was pretty good, but like most Chinese American food, bland. That's that's my hot take from July eighteenth, nineteen eighty-nine. So it wasn't Szechuan. <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> I don't think my my um, Texas Oklahoma grandmother wanted such fun food for her birthday she was 58 the um when i was a kid i was told to keep a journal oh by your school or by your folks by my folks i think there's a tradition in mormon culture specifically of you know keeping a record of your life it, it ties into the emphasis on genealogy and but also your and family you know, history and frontier uh idea that Got to make leave a record, and that was what my parents always said. And I was like, "Why would I? Nothing happened to me today." And my mom would always say the same thing. That's what Laura Ingalls thought. You know, oh. she thought she was just having a boring day. You know, milking the goat or whatever. And yet, you read those books, and you're just transported because what you think are the mundane details of your life are in another place and time. Fascinating. And I suppose that's the whole conceit behind this podcast. Mm-hmm. But I, ne- I never really bought it from my mom. Oh, really? Like the best I can hope for is that um, my journals will be those kind of dull pioneer books. I could never get more than a 
few chapters into. Yeah, she's like, oh, don't you love Little House on the Prairie? And you're like, mm, not really. Pass. <laughs> not really very many space battles in yeah, it. Yeah, there's no, there's no Nellie Olson even in my own, uh, in my own writing. I, I always think, um, I always think back to that picture uh, that got tweeted a couple of years ago of the traveling Wilburys with, oh yeah, with their ages <laughs> yeah. at the time underneath. It was a shock to see my grandmother was fifty eight because yeah. I'm picturing her in her eighties. Yeah, and Roy Orbison was fifty two in that picture, and he's he seemed one. like you know he was. Well, he wasn't going to live much longer, right? He was. He died. You can do it with the Golden Girls too. Fifties. You know, oh, when the right. Golden Girls start, they're all like. 45, except for the one who played the mom. She was actually 41 and they aged her up. Right. Um, but this idea of keeping a record of your life has become increasingly, oddly, it's become more, not less relevant in recent years because of, because everybody turned into a, a journaler. Right. With, or the, a, with the advent of blog culture and then social media. A photo journal too became a, a crazy thing. And that's really better. Like when you look back, what do you want to read? Uh, you know, this crap about how I did on my Spanish test or Steve Largent retiring, or do you want to read, uh, do you want to see a family scrapbook, you know, like the photos you always immediately want to see. Yeah. Uh, it was always the right technology for it. I, what I want is to go back to 15 year old me and have him write about his feelings in a, in a way that I'm only capable of now. Yeah. When I was 15, I couldn't have written about my feelings. Well, that's the argument for keeping the journal, because you could go back later and... Be reminded. And interpret your reactions then through the lens of now. Yeah. And if, and if not, your whole childhood's just gone. You're just going to forget. You know, you're going to remember one thing that happened to you a month. The manuscript of the walk uh, has had almost no talk in it about my feelings. But when I went back to work on it, I started to put that stuff in. And then when I let people read it, and you know, over the years, I've let half a dozen people read it. The women I've let read it have always said, would you talk more about yourself, please? Like, that's what we're interested in. And the men have said, would you talk more about Hitler? They're like, whoa, the Hitler stuff is cool. I don't know. I skipped through all the other stuff. <laughs> Who's this John guy? So I started to write, you know, I started to put stuff in because I could remember and there were, it did trigger memories about, you know, well, this is kind of what I was going through emotionally and it does improve, it improves the book, improves the story. To. I mean, it would have to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's why this is dull because I'm actually not writing about the stuff that's just stewing in my head. Tell me now how you felt on that, on that uh, cold winter day when you and your grandmother went to... Chinese food, and she was fifty-eight. Apparently, the food was bland. You, you don't, you and don't. I was still, and I was still trying to tell myself that the the Nicholson Batman was good. It doesn't trigger a, a like a just the the combination of the two Nicholson Batman and Chinese food with grandma doesn't put you in enough of a place where you can say like, uh, "Oh, what a lonely boy." If I had put down anything else, like if I had put down, you know, what theater did I see it at? You know, what um, what did we get grandma for her birthday? There are no telling details in the book. It's um, you would never have predicted that this person would become uh, a writer. I guess you could have predicted he would have become a very mediocre writer. Did you have? I mean, I we I know we've talked about our our uh, our respective crushes on the members of the Go Go's, 
you loved Belinda Carlisle, and I I was pre- uh, preferential to Jane Weedland. But mm-hmm. did you have crushes? You must have had crushes on little schoolgirls. Um, Oh, when absolutely. you were in your thirties, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, at the time, right? You like when you were thirteen, you had a crush on a on a girl. Yeah, and it was just that was so embarrassing to even think about. You didn't even talk about your friend. You talked to your friends about it, and much less put it on paper. So, when you were sixteen, seventeen, did you have a high school girlfriend? Not particularly. No, no. So your first girlfriend was in college. Was your first girlfriend Mindy? <laughs> no. <laughs> But yeah, but um, but yeah, not really. There, there, there isn't a lot of. There isn't a lot of dating drama. There was hardly any dating at my international school. Kathleen Edwards was there. She's a cute girl. Yeah, who was she dating? I don't even know. Well, she was a lot younger than you. We'll have right? to read so her journal. I don't think she was dating anybody because she was in eighth grade. She was in middle school. That's Although, true. who knows? You know, there were kids in my middle school that ha- that were dating boyfriend girlfriend. Really, in eighth grade, seventh grade, even. I was so, I was so not. Uh, you couldn't be less dating than I was in eighth grade. The uh, right Dungeons and Dragons. We've done the show. The uh, you know the modern obsession with or the modern possibilities at least of documenting every day of a life and just assuming you'll have that. I've been thinking about that lately because I, I've been missing not having the like the research material. Um, the uh for what for anything like i um have a like a, a friend who's an older guy uh probably pushing 80 and he was telling me oh, a story you were talking about me i was like i have I'm a right friend here. pushing 80 so indie rocker no and he was telling a story about discovering some letters uh you know some letters that he taking out some letters he'd had for a long time from when his parents died and it includes the letters his mom and dad wrote to each other during their courtship right which i'm sure they would have you know, maybe cringed at the idea of anybody else looking at either then or now. But he was taking out a reading with his kids, and they got a little misty about being able to get this window into grandma and grandpa's life. And you realize how valuable this stuff is. And I'm starting to realize now that I have, you know, I have all these questions about my childhood, about my parents' childhood, about, you know, their parents' upbringing. And right now I have my parents around, so I can shoot a quick... T- the other day when we did the MIA stuff, POW MIA stuff on the show, I texted my dad to be like, hey, tell the story of uh, of how the draft lottery worked and how you got a, a good number. You know, what were the mechanics of that? And if you had asked me, like, do you know everything about your parents? I'd be like, yes, I'm, I'm good. I'm ad infinitum, I know about my parents. And yet in practice, every single time I need to know one of these things, I'm, I'm texting them because I don't have the stuff. Yeah. And you realize that this is going to be gone at some point when those people are gone, and my my day to day stuff is going to be gone when my when I stop breathing. And you want there to be some record, and there actually is some utility for it. It's not just it's not just ego. I think I've told you about finding. You know, my dad was an amateur photographer, and after he and my mom divorced, he lived in Alaska, and and she took us down to Seattle, and. Um, <clears throat> I find all these photos and all these slides that my dad took of his life between 1971 and 1970, what, seven, when I moved back up with him. So six years. All these people that I never met, all 
close friends with my dad during the construction of the pipeline and the, you know, like boom years in Alaska. If he'd been a Mormon or a scrapbooker, he would have labeled the back of every picture. Right. Obsessively. And, this is Jim. And there's no, there's no record of them. And then there are clearly women that he's close with, right? Like people he's dating, people that he's in long-term relationships with. Maybe some of them even are still alive. And they knew my dad as well as anybody. And I have no idea who they are or where, where they are. That's the crazy thing about record keeping is that to me, I have like a bunch of cringe journals and a bunch of badly framed photos from the film era. And yet to somebody in 50 years, it's going to be like, this is a tantalizing treasure trove, you know, like <laughs> Carl Malone. I mean, not the stuff about the 1988 all-star game, but yeah. like, you know, wait, why does he say this about his relationship to his sister? Like what actually happened? You know? Well, my mom wrote letters back and forth with her grandmother for 40 years. When people wrote letters, there yeah. was more of a you know, paper you, trail. You got a letter and you sat down and wrote a reply. But she says, reading back, that her grandmother's letters are all just farmer's almanac stuff. Like, well, yeah, we've you know got a new foal, and snow came three days early, and Loring goes wilder. Yeah, and it, there's just no there's no narrative really. It's just reports. I mean, I think what what you do. This is what my grandmother did before she died: not eat a bland Chinese meal, although I'm sure she did is she wrote a very elaborate family history and she gave everybody bound copies and we were all super polite. Oh, thanks, My grandma. Did this too, yeah. And, um, you know, it sat collecting dust in a drawer and I just thought, uh, you know, kind of a booby prize, a vanity project. Did and, you yet, and, yet, and yet now that she's gone, like that's, that's super valuable because that's, that's all I have when I have questions about her life, you know? It's, it's more than just Ancestry.com? Oh, absolutely. Because it's, you know, she went back and did, you know, it's remembering conversations with these people. You know, it's it's her echoes of, of two or three generations that are lost to me yeah. um, via conversation and memory. That's and, cool. um, and there is sort of a lot, of, but even the, the nuts and bolts of uh, here's why I had to leave the Marine Corps and when, you know, yeah, whereas yeah. I, if somebody asked me, your grandmother was a Marine, when did she get out? I'd be like, uh, the end of the war might be a great story, you know, and uh, if she hadn't done that. So I guess arrange to know when you're going to die and turn your life into narrative. It's the, the memoir impulse. But, you know, today we've all got unlimited access to photos and vacation descriptions and bragging. And, but maybe not the why. Yeah. I, I think about this a lot. Like the one thing we don't know, the, or the things we don't know about each other, like I don't know, for instance, I don't know if you're good at kissing. There's only, only one way to find out, John. Uh, talk to Mindy, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. But the thing is, Mindy's never going to say. There's no. There's no situation where she's going to be like, you know what? Ken's really good at kissing. You can look at you and tell what a good kisser you you probably are with these with these full luxuriant lips mm -hmm. and just your passion. You're just the passion that comes off of you. But it's a but it's a big part of being a person. Kissing. Are you a good kisser? Do you kiss a lot? Do it's, you it's easily 65% of being a person. Yeah, certainly 65% of being a married person. Like, and the, the rest is sandwiches. There are people that aren't good at kissing that don't even like kissing. 
And then there are people that all they think about is kissing. Yeah, but nobody thinks they're bad at kissing. Nobody's going to write in their journal, well, I'm pretty bad at kissing. Sadly, that's true. And it's just like politics. The people that, <laughs> the wrong ones. that think they're the best at it are not. <laughs> is there a batter minor syndrome for kissing? But, you know, we everybody's got so many hot takes. When your kids, or when your, I'm sorry, great, great, great grandkids say, what was Ken going through? My great, great, great grandfather. They're going to get all your hot takes on the new season on the WB. But what do they what do they yeah, like, want like they don't want to know which um what i think of the claremont burn x-men run right which is what a lot of my high school notebooks are going to be about yeah but the question is why are you doing it you know are you doing it for are you doing it for you now is it helping you just put your thoughts in order is it something to look back on a few weeks later yeah is it something to look back on later in life and remember like i'm doing now uh or is it something for future and if so who does it serve right is it your own mythology or is it or is it what your kids are going to want to know about you? Does it need to protect your feelings at that point if you've been dead five years, 105 years? Oh, that's oh, all the all the great letters that were burned by mm-hmm. somebody, you know, to preserve your to preserve Oscar Wilde's privacy or whatever. And you're like, come on, who cared about his privacy? Plus, if you think about the letters that were burned for being hot, and you yeah. read them now, and it's probably like my soul throbs, and she <laughs> exactly. was like, well, I'm ripping up this one. My handkerchief. Is so damp. I toss and turn on the pillow at night. <gasps> she said pillow. But you know, that stuff, I mean, so so much of that was probably performative, right? Because they weren't actually having sex. But what, what I really, we're not yet, in, despite all of our confessional culture, we're not yet able to, to really talk about our feelings. I think it's, that's because we've ramped up the performative nature too. When you think about what replaced... What replaced diaries, it was social media, which is all about, you know, what what I want to make sure other people are thinking of me right. right now. Here's my pose. Mindy had an issue the other day where she went to lunch with a friend and they had kind of decided they were not going to put anything on social media because, you know, just for FOMO of the people who didn't come to lunch. Oh, yeah. And her friend was like... You know, just put up, put up photos, and Mindy was like, "Well, I thought we said we were okay. Okay, I thought we said we weren't gonna do the." There's just this compulsion to share your life and to feel like the things that are happening to you are not actually happening or have no actual value unless they have been translated into um, social media. Basically, until you move your life into the metaverse, it didn't, it didn't happen. But you don't do this. You don't have an Instagram account. I don't. You don't put. You're like, I made pasta. You don't do any of that. You know what Mindy does, which is pretty genius, which is best of, best of both worlds, is my um, lovely and accomplished wife got turned on to this app called Day One, okay. where you can upload photos and any captioning or, or text you want, journaling text you want, and it is only for you. It just lives on your phone. So you get the, you get the feeling that you're doing social media because you're, you found a fun picture of your fun lunch or um, your goofy friend that you were hanging out with and you can put that on social media and put a fun caption and then it'll always be there to look back on and remember the good times, but no one is going to judge you for it. Yeah. But 100% you're going to get an email one day that says our company is going (laughs) belly up and uh, you have three days to download this. Well, I I thought it would be worse than that. I thought it would be like, okay, we've now figured out everything about you and we've sold all your DNA to, uh, (laughs) to Elon Musk's Starlink system. The lasers are operational at dawn. I mean, it would be great to then download that and publish it into a book and then have that be a photo album 
you know, yeah. on your shelf like your grandmother used to I think to have. you do, when you're browsing, you may want something to page through. And, you know, there's companies that do that. Yeah. yeah have yeah. you ever done that? Like, we have, we often give gifts. You know, Mindy will go through and get a bunch of pictures and make a little scrapbook and send it to grandma and grandpa. The motorcycle trip I took last year that I've probably talked about on the show. Did you make a little lace scrapbook of your motorcycle trip? <laughs> I didn't, but Gregor, the guy who, who you know, uh, arranged it and, and was the kind of leader, he made this beautiful hardcover book that he sent to us all. And it's just like, and he. <laughs> I love that he's a motorcycle guy, but he's making you guys a shutterfly. He's a great photographer. And so, you know, so he took pictures of every meal. But also he he found a way to make every single one of us look heroic. Yeah. So you're flipping through the book and you're just like, whoa, I had no idea I looked so cool. And look, everybody looks cool. Like he, he got the picture uh, every time you wheelied over a stump or whatever, he was there. And, uh, and it's a great book. The new emphasis on pictures really is a result of actually being able to find pictures of you that look good. No, right, because no, no, we all take 400 pictures. Right, and then you – because nobody – Nobody younger than us really understands what it's like to just get 20 pictures back and they're all bad. And you Every have to put one in the family album, but somebody's looking in the wrong way and somebody has red eyes. Every single and one. And there's a thumb. Blurry, uh, you know, like when you frame it, you think this is a great photo, but in the end you cropped it wrong and the, and the person is tiny and... Like, like we all have what would have been coffee table National Geographic quality photos taken of us every day. 35 now. mil. Well, yeah, but I mean, the pictures probably, 35 millimeter films, probably way better. Yeah, no, like the, we, we all have, it's like we're all the subject of a coffee table book now because we have good pictures of ourselves every day if we want it. Not a luxury available to past generations. Ken, you know I'm a writer. Yes, you love making content. The I world do. doesn't have enough and you're like... Here's the fire hose. Here comes some content. The thing is, I make a lot of content, but I don't put it in the fire hose because I want a more integrated community and uh, and I don't know where to find it. Are you saying you would like some kind of fully integrated commenting system that allows for threaded comments and replies and likes like you have your very own little social media platform for your content? That's exactly what I want to do. And I want it optimized for mobile I want my content, uh, my c content to adjust so my site looks great on any device, but I'm at a loss. You, John, need the powerful blogging tools of Squarespace. It's easy with Squarespace to set up a website that does all that. Categorize, share, and schedule your posts. You can cross-post so you put something up once and it knows how to send it in the right format to Twitter or Tumblr or Facebook, whatever you want. Everything optimized and tagged and ready to go. Squarespace sounds great. It does. Well, I'm I'm so excited. Uh, you know, this is exactly what I've been looking for. So, so what do I do? John, I want you right now to head to squarespace.com/omnibus. Stop whatever you're doing. <laughs> go to squarespace.com/omnibus and start your free trial. And when you're ready to launch, then you just use offer code omnibus and you're going to save not 2, not 5, but 10% off your first purchase of a Square site website or domain. Well, thank you to Squarespace for supporting Omnibus and the Omnibus Project. Help us by helping yourself. Go to squarespace.com slash omnibus and put in the offer code omnibus to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So I was on Instagram for a long time and I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was like 
one of the friendliest places online. Mm-hmm. People generally were supportive and, and I enjoyed keeping a record of, I, I would actually go back to the Instagram and see what I was doing on uh, at certain points. It was a, a valuable resource. They know this is a use case because they'll send you things like yeah. two years ago today, look at you and your friends at the zoo. But when I left social media last year, I also left Instagram, even though I liked it there. Mm-hmm. Um, because during the Bean Dad thing, I got 40 people that I'd never seen before that were like, you should have your daughter taken away. And so I was like, well, this isn't a safe space anymore either. And I miss it. I do. I miss it. You can do what I do, which is lurk there just to see your friend's pictures. Yeah, but I don't want to see pictures of people's flowers and pets. You know, I want to be... It's my nieces and nephews, John. I want to be part of their lives. And I want, you know, I I, I was... Somebody texted me the other day I hadn't heard from in a while. And I was like, hey, how's it going? And she said, well, if you were still on Instagram, you would know. (laughs) And I'm like... How dare you ask me in written or oral speech? I'm like, yeah, but you're texting me. We're friends. You know, send me a a little update. And she's like, well, go on my Instagram. (laughs) And I understood. Do, do the work, John. Sit your white ass down and do the work. I understood what she meant, you know? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I should. That's on me, I see guess. See every picture of your dog. Well, the forerunner of today's uh, standard of exhaustive documentation of our lives uh, was our Buckminster Fuller. Richard, what? Richard Buckminster Fuller. Come on. He was busy making buckyballs. Right. We think of him as an inventor. Yeah. Although the funny thing about being a full-time theorist and futurist is you don't actually have to invent anything that works. <laughs> and Fuller, in fact, did not. <laughs> I saw a buckyball the other day, and it almost looked like it had once been inhabited. No, that's not true. Uh, we should explain to the future that for much of the 20th century, our idea of future, uh, philosophizing uh, of the future, came from one... American man who loved geodesic domes and Epcot center was built during that time. Like that's why all of our future looking stuff from like a 30 year period all has a very particular aesthetic. Well, the new, the new Amazon is just a, it's just a, like it's a big big buckyball with plants in it. Yeah. It's fuller meets bios biodome. But he was like, Mr. Uh, the earth is a, is a spaceship, right? That was his great, guiding principle in his own looking back on his life. He just, he told us that he had devoted his life to the idea of spaceship earth. And it's true. This is a phrase that did not exist before Fuller. It's like kind of doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) We used to say it all the time because it's goofy, but just this idea that we're all in this together, traveling through. I mean, it's a, it's a metaphor you could not have had before the space age. Imagine that we're all traveling through space at 66,000 miles per hour on this craft that has a certain number of resources. All the sun, all the energy comes directly or indirectly from the sun. That's all we have. It sounds like an episode of Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the vibe when you, when you look back at his, at his writings. And, he's, and he says, I'm going to bring to bear my keen mind on this big picture that only I can see, which is we have this many resources we need to make life as good as possible for everyone, and we can do it. We're just not doing it right. Mm-hmm. Um, Boy, that's proto-internet. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it really, it's kind of the, yeah, all these internet big thinkers are are kind of Bucky Juniors. Yeah, right. Um, and he had specific, as kind of the leading futurist of his time, he had specific ideas. He had coined the word dimaxion at some point in the 40s or 50s for these kit-built houses 
um, as a portmanteau of, I think, dynamic and maximize and tension. Um, di, max, yun. Uh-huh. And he became, that became an all-purpose prefix for all of his forward-thinking stuff. He invented... It's like a Quonset hut. Yeah, it, it was just a, a kit-built house. Um, but he, you know, he later went on to build Dimaxion cars, which were, hmm. which was just kind of a little three-wheeled thing that never existed oh. beyond a prototype. But it could, I think I've seen that. It could turn yeah. on a dime. Yeah. Um, it's it's still kind of in, jibes with the idea of what a future efficient pod car from Minority Report might look like. His Dimaxion map was a was a world a better projection of the world kind of expanded out into hexagons not on or pentagons not unlike a geodesic dome right um the dome was really the only idea that you that caught on in the american landscape you probably remember driving around in the 70s or 80s and seeing the occasional person putting one of these up in the suburbs or the exurbs yeah you can still find them uh in washington if you uh if you as i do look for Land on the water in Kitsap County. Is this nationwide? Because I I only think of these as being a Northwest phenomenon, but they must have been everywhere. They were everywhere. I, they had them in Alaska, um, but I think they're really common in places like Iowa and North Carolina. I mean, I just, I feel like, but it's hippies. It's always yeah. hippies. So wherever hippies could be found in those ta- times, Asheville, probably, they're, they're geodesic domes. All around Asheville in the hills. A certain type of a certain type of sufficiently moneyed and scientifically oriented hippie. You know, the answer is not to reclaim some old homestead. We need to look ahead. Yes. You know, what's gonna make life better and, and Buckminster Fuller will show us the way. But they always leaked and got covered with moss, right? Or is that just in the Northwest? <laughs> Windows were tricky. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If your house is little tiny uh, pentagons strung together, decorating's difficult. No two walls meet at a right angle. Uh, Fuller was born in 1895 in Milton, Massachusetts, just kind of a, a, a tony enough suburb that it's also the birthplace of George H.W. Bush. Uh-huh. He came from a, an illustrious line of, uh, of New England thinkers. In fact, he was the grandnephew of Margaret Fuller, the, uh, essentially the first American, the inventor of American feminism. Oh, in a better world, the show would be about her, John. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, does this show pass the uh, Bechtel test? No. <laughs> Here, we'll we'll do it. I'll be uh, I'll be Margaret Fuller. You'll be another transcendentalist woman. Okay. Hello, Eliza. Oh, hello. <laughs> Why are you a pepper pot from Monty Python? <laughs> How are you? Women perhaps should have the franchise. What think you, Eliza? Oh, I couldn't agree more. Bechtel test. <clears throat> uh, but he came from a family of transcendentalists. Uh, and he, being born in 1895, any relation to the Fuller bl- brush company? <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. In fact, okay. they also invented, uh, <laughs> I didn't even know what that is. The Fuller brush. Yeah. But what are they? Are they all kinds of brushes. A uh, guy, yeah. a guy comes with a briefcase full of brushes. I know this, but is it everything? Is it like cleaning out your car and brushing your teeth and vacuum attachments? Yeah. The, I mean the Fuller brush didn't paint they, brushes. Like didn't, one company can't make every kind of brush. It was a, like a vacuum, except it wasn't electric. It was just like a push, like wonk, 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 wonk. Like a carpet sweeper. Yeah. Like a sweeper, but not electric, just a sweeper. I have no idea if this is true. I think we're going to have to do a Fuller brush company. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'll put that on the list. Omnibus. Being born in 1895, he often described his life as, um, you know, he, being born at the perfect time just to see the world change. Oh, my God. 1895 was also the birth of radio, the first consumer automobiles, the curious discover x-rays. He was 20 when World War I started, so he saw the fin de, fin de siècle. 
he served in World War One, in oh. fact, which is uh, which again in his own account becomes a huge turning point in his life, um, because. Well, starting a little earlier, he was always interested in his perception of his own life, uh, as maybe many kind of self-mythologists, the kind of people who become famous often have a plan to do so. Mm. And he was certainly one of these people. You see hints in his early life. At at four years old, he he was very far-sighted as a child. At four years old, he finally got prescription lenses and put on graphics, uh, put on on graphics, (laughs) put on a pair of glasses and was shocked to see the world, you know, that he was now a different person because he could view and interact with his surroundings in an accurate way. He could see the gnomes that he only suspected were hiding <laughs> were in the rafters. Lingering just out of sight. He, he frames this as a very formative moment for him that, um, that really our perception of the universe is all how clearly we can see things. And that influenced his record keeping. When his father died in 1908, he inherited all of his dad's correspondence and started indexing those letters. In World War I, he was in the Navy, and, you know, the armed forces can, I think they can look at you for about five seconds and see, this is somebody who should be collating and alphabetizing things, right? You need, <laughs> you need to write our battalion newsletter and not be yeah. one of these guys over here. Into the nerd core with you. He looked nerd core enough to join the nerd core, and as a result, um, I mean, he later did command some kind of a, some kind of a shipwreck retrieval? No, uh, a crash rescue boat, the USS Inca. But if he spent most of his time in the Navy editing the newsletter, alphabetizing files, and he really kind of found a lot of, I mean, he, he, must, he never says this, he must have found it intensely satisfying because it is great. I'm doing the index for my latest book right now. And boy, nothing feels better than producing order from chaos in the form of a neat index. Most authors hire somebody. I don't trust. I don't trust anybody to <laughs> to understand my book well enough to alphabetize it. Um, so he must have found it satisfying. But he just when he discusses it later, looking back, he just talks about how all this chaos would have produced no value, and suddenly, through his organizing principles, it became just an ex- endlessly exhaustive and useful trove of information. Um, so we can see evidence, contemporary evidence, because as we'll see, he left a great record of his life, that his interest in record-keeping is growing over time. But he often presented it later as a road to Damascus kind of epiphany. In 1927, at a low point in his life, he's actually considering suicide. Oh. And in his own record of it, he decides to be reborn as a different kind of man. You know, his concerns will be larger. He's not going to be one of these regular rat race guys just trying to keep his head above water and to keep his family fed. His concern will not just be his own, but in a much more broad-minded way, the entire human race. And this is the beginning of all the spaceship Earth stuff. Um, That was a time when you really could decide to do a thing like that and not have a bunch of people on the internet roll their eyes at you. Or even your cynical Generation X friends. You're not going to know 10 other people having the same silly idea there were fewer people with the same idea. Like he, he legitimately was ahead of the curve of thinking of having this kind of 20th century Starfleet utopianism. Yeah. Right. The earth. And I guess the airplane and the telegraph and all that would have been maybe the first would, would have inspired people um, to think of the earth as small. So he commits what he refers to as an act of ego suicide. Yes. He is no longer a selfish 
you know, bundle of fluids and, and squirting urges. Oh. He is now interested only in the omni-physically successful, spontaneous self-integration of all humanity into a one-town world. Kapow! He has a mission statement, and he frames it later in life, looking back, as an experiment. He is going to run a... He figures he's got... Actu- actuarially, he figures he has 42 more years to live. And in fact, it turned out to be... Let's see, he died in 1988, I think. So it turned out to be closer to... Oh, he died in 83. So it turned out to be closer to 56 more years. Okay. Go, to, man. To devote to a half-century experiment with no capital backing in which he would become guinea pig B. Who is guinea pig A? I wondered the same thing. My speculation was that, well, guinea pig A is the- A real guinea pig. Is doing the- no, <laughs> Yeah, it's an actual guinea pig. <laughs> Named that, Cinnamon That toast. he will murder. <laughs> that he will dissect. No, the guinea pig A is normal people doing their normal lives, whereas he is guinea pig B trying a different kind of uh, oh, approach see. to the universe. Oh, guinea pig A maybe was Buckminster Fuller in a, on a different timeline. Ah, multiverse of madness. Yes. In fact, from what I- His book called guinea pig B, B never, guinea pig B never explains the nomenclature. I think it may just be B for Bucky. I think it may be guinea pig Buckminster. You know, there's a bunch of test subjects running around the maze, but guinea pig B is going to be doing his own thing. How is guinea pig B not a, uh, guinea pig Buckminster, not a band? (laughs) Guinea pig Buckminster. What a great band name. (laughs) Nobody could ever say it twice. Guinea pig Buckminster. And he realizes, as he writes, you know, close to his death in the 80s, writing back on this act of ego suicide, um, he decides then he realizes in his new life, if this is going to be a rigorous experiment, of course you need experimental data. You need records. And he, nobody's going to be recording this. He, he right. doesn't have a staff. He didn't have a graduate student in a white lab coat. He doesn't. I mean, the funny thing is later he does. He actually does. Right. By the end of his life, he does have a small staff in full time devoted to documenting no. Guinea pig B. Really? Um, How many sheets of toilet paper he used, et cetera? Exactly. Um, so he decides he's going to have to be his own lab team. And so he begins what he calls the chronophile. And it's again, it's already, he already is an obsessive record keeper. He's got his dad's stuff. He's already been keeping all his correspondence and stuff. But now, now it's got a name. It's the Dymaxian chronophile, a new kind of life well-examined. And he's just going to keep everything because the subject of the experiment, the guinea pig, it's not for him or her to judge what, which data is important in the moment. Right. You won't know. No. A, 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 a smarter experimenter might know, and certainly posterity will know by definition. So you've just got to keep everything. So he begins to keep a series of bound volumes. There are so many different posterities, though. Right. What people in 1980 think is important isn't what we think is important in 2000. That's why you can never throw anything away. Right. If you keep all the raw data, then future experimenters will have access to your, to your uncurated work. So he keeps every single piece of correspondence. He keeps all his sketches and marginal doodles, which I presume are not of Captain, Captain America, America. With a, with, with a thick very broad and small. America. All the marginal notes from every, um, newspaper he ever read every he has a news clipping service send him everything about himself or other issues of great theoretical or philosophical philosophical import all the blueprints for his works of course all the models he makes all the recordings when he does events he has them send him a poster he keeps towards the end of his life when he's a successfully branded thinker he keeps all his merch you know there's every t-shirt that ever said i am a verb an evolutionary state of being or whatever the famous Fullerisms were um, every manuscript, 
um, thousands and thousands of photos, and he begins binding everything that's on paper into a series of 12 by 10 by 5 volumes, um, which begin to take over the shelves of his apartment on 88th Street and on the Upper West Side. Uh, his kids remember just these brown leather volumes with soft green covers that just have everything. And uh, his goal was to reconsider his life every 15 minutes, you know, the, that the chronophile would contain a record 15 minutes by 15 minutes of his life. Whoa. And that would include nighttime too, because he was an experimenter with Dynaxion sleep. He tried prophasic sleep where you, you get more rested by taking a, getting extremely tired than taking a brief nap that plunges you directly into REM sleep. And then you're back awake for another two hours of, of productive labor on designing the future of the, of the species. How does that, how did that pan out? He only did it for a few years in the forties, it seems. But for those years, he's got records of every 15 minutes, even, even at 2 a.m. I've often wanted to experiment with it, but it's not for a family man. Dimaxian sleep. Dimaxian sleep. Uh, people, people who try it say that you do, in fact, you know, he was saying, I get 22 hours of, of Buckminster Fuller thought and productivity every day now. And people do say it's good for um, productivity, but maybe it also induces paranoid schizophrenia. I don't know. <laughs> you, uh, you sleep for 15 minutes and then you pop back awake. And work for two hours, and then you sleep for 15 minutes. Yeah. But you I mean, have to do that on a 24-hour clock, right? You, yes. Yeah. And the world doesn't adapt to guinea pig B, so you've, you've really got to be your own man. Yeah. yeah or yeah, a woman, yeah. if we want this to pass the Bechdel test. Sure. Um, it still hasn't, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you remember those two transcendentalists, but they were very early to uh, women's suffrage. Um, by the end of his life, he had a staff that was treating it as an archive, cross-referencing it. You know, there were, by the time he died, there were 13,500 cross-reference index cards. He must have moved it at some point uh, out of the Upper West Side. Right. Um, he wound up, where do you wind up? In the Midwest, I think? Carbondale, Illinois? Is that where he died? He ended up in California, but I think he spent a lot of the middle of his life in Illinois. So yeah, he, this must have been a guy with, a, with just a garage full of boxes of junk, like, yeah, like yeah. so many men of his generation. Although in his case, it was literally, you know, 2,000 feet of shelf space in just in paper alone. What, what keeps Buckminster Fuller from being thought of as an outsider artist, right? Like there are people that have this stuff and, the, and it's discovered when they're dead and it's just like, wow, what a genius. But I guess he was a genius in his time. So it just ends up being a quirk. Because he was too so busy making things shaped like geodesic domes, you know, from houses to desk calendars to power plants, um, the chronophile just seems like one of a hundred crazy ideas that he right. had. Right, right, right. Um, and it didn't intrude on him building the Montreal Expo biodome. And it really didn't, it doesn't come up in his work. When you read contemporary accounts of his life, the chronophile is hardly ever mentioned. It's only later in his 80s that he starts to write about this great turning point he reached. And in fact, I think that's because there is a lot of grandiosity and kind of self-magnification of the narrative going on there. You know, it's a better story for him to say that when really he's just a pack rat. Yeah. He's really just a hoarder of uh, every dry cleaning bill and every doodle from a hotel notepad. And he turned that into an ethos in hindsight and by that time, he had a staff that could take care of it. In 1976, his daughter, um, Allegra, took over and really inherited, you know, 
a mess that she didn't know what to do with. Right. Her father's trash. He had spent enough time with, um, you know, he and her, he and she had both spent enough time with the luminaries of the 20th century to know that, well, Jonas Salk has an institute. Maybe he would want this. Henry Ford has a museum. Maybe they would want this. Um, And their requirements were that the whole thing had to be kept together and it had to be preserved in an optimally effective way for all humanity forward compatible. Did he did he live long enough to recognize that digital digitalizing it was the was at least the direction we were headed? He must have known, you know, because he lived till nineteen eighty three. Yeah. So, did he ever put it on floppy disks? I don't know if he ever did. I mean, at that point, maybe some of the speeches he was giving were coming from um, WordStar. Mm-hmm. So maybe there are. You but would have to photo stats weren't. We need somebody at the Stanford Library to tell us. Is that where it ended up? It ended up at Stanford. Um, because they would keep the collection together and agree to his conditions about how this had to be openly available for research. And it has to, you know, it has to fulfill all my, cause he's got all these um, mission statement goals about, you know, it must, it has to be, it has to address our issues of uh, energy shortage, but also it has to be efficient. You know, he was really interested in living the most effective life because if, if humanity lives an efficient, effective life, then we have resources and prosperity for all. Um, and that even went to his archive. So Stanford agreed and put out a big press release about this very exciting collection. By this time, it is 200,000 letters, 150,000 clippings, 4,000 hours of audio and video, 15,000 photographs. It's just miles and miles of Bucky. And it's there today, and it's open to the public. Huh, really? Yeah. So, I mean. Just go see. You can put in a cassette tape of Buckminster Fuller reading the phone book. You can see his uh, fast food receipts, I think. Um, pairs of eyeglasses. You know, every, Stanford got everything. So it's the whole point of the archive was its completeness. Right. Um, and the funny thing is, the funny thing in hindsight is that we now think of Buckminster Fuller as kind of a quaint figure of the past. You know, like, I don't know what the modern day equivalent is, but he's nothing like Bucky in, in temperament or accomplishments. Uh and yet, his whole idea, you know, the whole point of this was to um, was to live forever because his was the the new life, the man of the future, and nobody's ever right about that. I guess it's funny because there are inventors like Thomas Edison or Henry Ford, where we still live and interact with. They a, actually changed the world. Yeah, a facsimile, at least, of of their invention. Yeah. Like a Ford still says Ford, and it still looks like a Ford. Essentially, and that even though all these light bulbs are LED, they're designed to look like Thomas Edison's original creation. Yeah, we're still living in Ford's world, and uh, but there are all those mid-century Edison's inventors world. that were like the auto car, you know, the domed cities under the sea. That it now seems so much like sort of weirder and out of time, but I could see where. 300 years from now, if the Buckminster Fuller archives are still being maintained by, by future Stanford, that going in there and, 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 you know, and asking like how many times did he eat at McDonald's and where, I don't know, might have, might be amazing. Yeah. I mean, his ideas, maybe we just haven't reached his world yet. You know, maybe he seems old fashioned now because we're not at his level yet, you know, because we were too slow to implement his ideas and his ethos. But if you, if you had like Dante Alighieri's 
uh, receipts or or uh, Charlemagne's like dinner receipts. Would you care? Endless treasure, I think. Think how Shakespeare scholars obsess about you know the the seven contemporary documents we have about him. You know, like. You know, if they found one extra church register that had one more line mentioning Shakespeare, it would just change the world of every English department in the world. But that's because of scarcity. Yes. If we had one million pictures oh, of Shakespeare at Coachella. <laughs> we would be so sick of him. Yeah, where you're just like, well, there he is. There's Shakespeare, you know. And what you're saying is keep the exact right amount of stuff. Yeah, we don't have Leave enough wanting more. about Shakespeare, but we have too much about Paris Hilton. Like, where do you, how do you thread that needle? Buckminster Fuller really should have spent a lot of his time documenting other people that we don't have enough of. Right, but it would be... Migrant workers. I guess, or, you know, like all the people whose Instagram accounts are just their dog. Um, Like, delete, 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 right? You're never going to want to see that. You're never going to want to look at somebody, 500 pictures of somebody's dog that died 100 years ago. You mentioned outsider artists, and that's interesting because there are other people less luminary than Fuller who have tried his experiment. Um, I mean, famously, a, a Fuller disciple, a, a sustainable architect, a famous architect of sustainable buildings named William McDonough, keeps a chronophile-like record of his life in imitation of Fuller. But many people are just cranks who do this. Um, let me introduce you to the Reverend Robert Shields of Dayton, Washington. I did not know where Dayton, Washington was. Where is it? Southeast corner. Yeah, there's nothing exactly. there. North Oregon, we call it. Uh, born in 1918, died in 2007, so 89 when he died. He was a, uh, you know, he spent, he retired to Dayton. He spent most of his life in the Midwest. He was an editor for World Book Encyclopedia. He had all these amazing kind of faintly academic 20th century jobs. By the time he landed, he'd been to Divinity School. By the time he landed in Dayton, he never, he didn't have a Congregationalist um, ministry anymore. You know, he performed the occasional wedding or, or christening or whatever. That's about it. You know, he taught part-time. He, I think, tutored kids. He did proofreading on the side. Just kind of um, retired academic stuff. You know, people, if somebody wanted their, their book gussied up before it hit the vanity press, he was the right neighbor for that. But he spent the last mm, 20 to 30 years of his life in full-time documentation mode. But there's nothing happening in Dayton, Washington. It, what that could is correct. Possibly, it's got, it's got like uh, one street going one way and the other street going the other way. How many people there? Like a thousand? I bet not. Oh, maybe. Maybe a thousand. Maybe, maybe two thousand. The smallest of towns. It's got a train station, so it, so it, had, it had two thousand people in his In his abundant uh, free time of his retirement, he spent documenting his life in five-minute increments. <gasps> so three Whoa. times more detail. Than R. Buckminster Fuller. Whoa. And he wound up generating 37.5 million words. In other words, guinea pig C here. Yeah, guinea pig C. Thir- that would be th- enough. Uh, that's 30 times the amount that Samuel Pepys wrote about his own life. Every day he would uh, walk out in his underwear to his porch where he would sit on a kind of a horseshoe shaped arena of six IBM, I think, memory 900 typewriters. You know, just so he would always have, you know, which, no, whichever way he was phasing, he had a typewriter. If, if one of them broke, he had five backups. This is a man after my own heart. He would just record his body temperature and his blood pressure repeatedly. Um, Anything interesting he found in the paper, he would keep all his new junk mail. Um, 
He would write down the cost of everything he bought. He had a whole classification system for his uh, urination and bowel movements so he could describe Um, every single one. I'm starting to lose interest. What, you were interested in his uh, blood pressure, but not in his peeing? It, uh, blood pressure is where I st- my interest started to decline. When we get to Reverend Shields' age, we will be so interested in our own peeing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, rem- I remember sitting with a group of my dad's friends, and they were all talking about their prostate for the 10,000th time. And I was like, you guys have lived phenomenal lives. Isn't there something else you could be talking about? And they were like, you just wait until you're our age. Your <laughs> prostate will be the only thing you care about. I had that ex- I had that experience at Jeopardy a couple of weeks ago. One of the producers was talking to the wardrobe guy at length about colonoscopies. And I come out of it and I'm just kind of smiling and nodding. And they're like, I'm, I'm sorry. We, you know, yeah. Alex was in his 80s. We just got so used to talking about nothing but prostate. Well, you're exams. not 50 yet. And at 50, you it's have coming. to go get your colonoscopy. They've lowered it to 45. I have some terrible news for oh. for contemporary listeners in their late 40s. Have you done it? I haven't. Because I just found this out, that yeah. it's not 50 anymore. It's 45. They must have just done it, because I only had it done last year. I told you my story, didn't I? No, but please don't. <laughs> I, I decided at the last minute, I, was, I asked the nurse, do you, do you have to... Take uh, anesthesia? I think, I think we did talk about that. And they said, you don't have to. And I said, does anybody ever do it without anesthesia? And they were like, no. Why would you? And I was like, I'm going to do it. That's, and so I had it done without anesthesia. I just hadn't realized what a hassle it is. I really don't recommend oh. doing it without anesthesia. You're talking about, oh, just, you have to just, drink the, just the potion. the day and, of not eating or drinking and then drinking um, eight pounds of barium or whatever it is. Well, and you're not supposed to mess around with it like... Like they can tell, yeah. They can tell if you had a cookie from what they see it. I've read, I've been reading up on how you know for the time in your life when you're supposed to get a colonoscopy every five years in hopes of catching whatever growth early enough. Instead of doing that, you could send in a sample every one year, and statistically, actuarially, you might be getting the same benefit because you know samples catch only catch stuff. You know, can't catch stuff years in advance of, of becoming cancerous the way a colonoscopy can. But if you're doing that every year, it might be about the same risk as a colonoscopy every five. You just sit out in your underwear on your horseshoe-shaped porch and... Putting poop in the poop, mail. Poop in a jar and send it to somebody. He, uh, Reverend Shields also tried prophasic sleep, mostly because he wanted to exhaustively record his dreams. So he would wake up every couple hours. Type down his dreams. Run to the porch and type out his dream and then back to bed. He kept, uh, there's, his records now include, he was on Oprah. Like he was, he was kind of a famous outsider artist of the time for, for having this, um, this weird lifestyle. But, but aware of Fuller and, and aware of, uh, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if he would have been aware of Fuller. I mean, he's. He's an imitator. He must have known, right? Because he, he, he did a ton, he did enough media about this that somebody would have said, "Well, you know, the, the great Buckminster Fuller had a similar pursuit." Right. But he would when, you know, every time he would ask, "Why would you do this?" He would just say, "Oh, you might say I'm a nut. We're driven by compulsions we don't know." So he was more honest. I actually like this about Shields is that when Fuller is asked to explain why he's a hoarder and you know self mythologizing hoarder, he just talks about how here on Spaceship Earth we must all. <clears throat> be so rigorous with our data and effective with our resources if we're to know truth. And Reverend Seal's just like, I don't know, I just got to. I'm, I'm a big weirdo. He taped nasal hair into his document so that I mean, we could clone Reverend Shields if you have any questions for him. I it's suppose. weird. He donated his full archives to Washington State University, which did not want them. 
doesn't sound like something that they, although they, they are doing a lot of weird stuff out there too with corn. It turns out if you give Wazoo $100,000, they will keep and climate control your work. Did he do that? So yeah, he set up a perpetual trust to pay for them to keep his work, but it cannot be read until 2057. I presume because of how candid he was about his Dayton, Washington neighbors, and he wanted to make sure they had all passed on. Oh, okay. He, he, was, uh, he had a series of strokes, uh, at which point he started dictating the... Um, in 1992, after a stroke, he spent his last five years dictating his archive to, a, I assume, a very patient spouse or caregiver. So, so and, fi- and finally died 10 years later. In Pullman, Washington, there's a building with the air conditioners running <laughs> that have... Uh, that 37.5 million uh, words and an untold number of nasal hairs. Jars of his poop. And it's all he there. did not keep the poop. He just kept oh. descriptions of the poop. Oh, oh, okay. He had a whole vocabulary for. There the are people di- in Germany that would pay for that book. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to give them a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> you just get the German internet on the case. And that concludes the Chronophile entry two two one dot es zero six zero one certificate number four nine one four six in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, all of your photos will be lost. No, wait. In the unlikely event that it does exist, your photos will... All those apps where you're taking a photo every day, that stuff will still be there. I don't think that will happen, though. Does Earth have enough land area to hold all the server farms you would need to preserve this data? No, I I think... Well, you know what it'll, it'll do? It'll be put into quantum computers... That are dancing on the head of a pin. Like actual objects will just hold, you know, like you'll have a little a, a lump of meteorite on your keychain. Yeah. And just the arrangement of the atoms is actually holding the quantum state of all your vacation photos. And every person you've ever known. Exactly. But it's, you know, it would be cross, cross-referencing, right? Like, like Mindy's account of you would be fascinating, but it would only be contextual if we had an account of Mindy to know how she was, how her perception of you was skewed. And then if you added my perception of you and my perception of Mindy. But Fuller was right. That's why you got to keep the raw data. If you've got a data point from every 15 minutes, like that's why we can look back now and see that Fuller was not totally honest about his, about his motives and his epiphanies, you know, because we can look in the chronophile and see it kind of develop over time. Yeah. So if you keep a rigorous enough record, you will have a fully holistic hologram of your life from every possible angle and data point. But you need to post pictures of your friends at lunch, and they need to post pictures of you at the same lunch, and all of those things have to be hashtagged so that they can be combined into a 3D picture of you guys at lunch that you can access via... So that if at any point you're taken out by a sniper, we can reconstruct the whole thing. Yeah. Reconstruct you and the sniping. Reconstruct you and the sniper and have a little truth and reconciliation meeting. That will be the future, by the way. Joining assassins and their victims (laughs) in the cloud to to share their feelings. Right, through AI. Yeah, and AI Oprah will help help JFK and uh, Oswald work things out. So when you shot him, how were you feeling? What was going through your head, President Kennedy? Well, all of a sudden, I feel like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are extremely important, and everyone listening should be filling those things. Every 15 minutes, or five if you live in Dayton. Put your pictures and thoughts about them up. If you live somewhere incident-filled like Dayton, Washington, it's got to be every five minutes. Otherwise, 15's okay. 
You can find some, but not exhaustive, but some documentation of our lives at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, at Omnibus Project. You can, uh, on Twitter, you can find uh, Omnibus After Dark. No, what's it called? Omnibus uh, at Random. What is the... Omnibus Out of Context. Omnibus Out of Context on Twitter. Very hilarious, uh, strange little excerpts taken out of context. Many of which are made up and nobody has ever called them on it. (laughs) Uh, You can email us and tell us mm, all about yourself because only Ken and Mindy will read it. They'll only send it to me if it has my name in it. And it has to be nice. And it has to if be it nice. If it has your name and it's mean. That's right. If it says I John is it, wrong. I save it to send you later when I'm mad. Uh, that you can email us that uh, at that email address, theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can hang out with other futurelings and share your experience, strength, and hope at Omnibus Futurelings, wherever social media exists. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how to search for things on the internet. You can mail us things for our extensive archives, which we will end up sending to Washington State University. We actually do have kind of an extensive archive of weird stuff. Because I never throw anything away. Although you and I both went to the University of Washington. So that's who, except real estate in Seattle is very expensive. Yeah, think how much you'd have to pay the University of Washington to keep all the... The uh, the weird um, restaurant placemats that Future Links have sent us. Yeah, right. Where would I guess we'll ha- we'll we'll farm it out to the Palouse. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you can send us things to PO Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. Do you have any mail, Ken? Nah. Oh, all right. I'll save it for next time. And uh, and you can support the show as we as, as we've seen. It costs a hundred thousand dollars to. To uh, endow your... Just to keep nasal hair in a room. Yeah, your poop archive. So imagine what Ken and I are generating just in terms of dander. (laughs) Dander alone. (laughs) Our dander bill alone is through the roof. We have very pink skin and it it, it danders. It really does. You you Uh, might be allergic to us even now in your era. But if you support the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project, your support goes toward keeping our archives... And also uh, maintaining the show, which is itself an archive of uh, of Western Civ. Actually, of all Civ. It's not very complete. We do this twice a week instead of every five minutes. Right. So that seems more than most people. So do. we may be falling behind, but we're gonna we're gonna keep keep at it. I still want to know if you're good at kissing or not. Uh, yeah, everybody's wondering. Everybody wants to know. Yeah. And you're, is this going to be like Shakespeare? You're going to keep it. You ask me as transcendentalist feminist Margaret Fuller if I'm good at kissing. Ken, are you good at kissing? Well, come over here, Margaret. Oh. <laughs> See? Oh. I'm, we're going to be the talk of Concord, Massachusetts. I do. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come but if the worst comes soon this recording with me kissing Margaret Fuller with consent by the way like all our recordings may be our final word but if providence allows we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus 